Welcome to Practice Life, the podcast devoted to the important non-clinical issues affecting the daily practice of equine veterinary medicine. Practice Life is brought to you by the American Association of Equine Practitioners. And I'm Mike Pannell, a practice owner and veterinarian, and a longtime EAP member and your host. Hello and welcome to the AAP Practice Life Podcast. I'm Dr. Mike Powell, and I am joined today by three very special guests. Let me give you a bit of preamble. When I was at the AAP convention in Denver, I sat in one of the table topics on developing the new grad, mentoring the new grad, and wow, what an engaged session it was. So I thought I would invite the moderators and one of the really active participants to it. So I'm joined by doctors Caitlin Daly, Liz Arbitier, and Luke Bass. Caitlin, let's start with you. Tell us who you are, where you're practicing. Tell us a little bit about you. So I have a solo practice up in Maine, right on the coast. I started that back in 2013. I am a 2011 graduate from Ohio State. I was a pretty active participant in the audience, and those that know me would not be surprised by that fact. I'm very passionate about mentoring our young grads and changing the industry, um, both for the positive and negative experiences I have had since graduation. So I'm really excited to join this conversation. Thank you. And just before we move on, how did you end up in Maine from Ohio? That's quite the move. <laughs> it is a bit of a move. Um, I'm not originally from Ohio, so I was pretty eager to leave uh, when graduation occurred. And then my family bought a home in Maine for retirement while I was in vet school. And I would go visit, and I fell in love with the area and the way of life. And when I graduated vet school, I really just wanted to return and be closer to my family that I kind of had to put on hold with all the stresses and demands of vet school. So there was, at the time that I graduated, very few jobs available on the market, but I was able to find one in Maine. Um, And then about a a little less than a year later, kind of decided that I was going to do my own thing. Excellent. Cool. Okay. And Liz, tell us about yourself. Where are you at and how did you end up there? Sure. Thanks so much for having me. I am a 2001 grad from the University of Pennsylvania School of Veterinary Medicine, and I'm from the Philadelphia area, so I didn't really get very far. Went into private practice for 12 years, strictly ambulatory, and then about six and a half years ago, made the move back to the University of Pennsylvania at New Bolton Center, where I am a assistant professor in field service, and I do strictly equine ambulatory. Mentoring new grads and helping develop vet students is definitely a passion of mine. It's really one of the main reasons I came back to the university, and I do find it to be really, really rewarding, and I want to make sure that we are fulfilling our responsibilities to these guys. So I appreciate this conversation. Excellent. And then last but not least, Luke Bass from Colorado State. Luke, welcome. Thank you, Mike. I am a 2007 graduate of Colorado State University and went from here to Central California, completed an internship and became an associate at a referral practice there and was was developed in the right way. Felt like the mentors there did a nice job of helping me become a veterinarian and, and to really introduce me into equine veterinary medicine. So stayed there for about five years and then came back to CSU and have been here also an assistant professor in equine field service for the last six years. While I was in California, I managed the internship program there, 
And then here we have an intern and a new ABVP residency program. So development of new graduates is something that I was proud to be a part of and continue to, to do that on a daily basis, as well as you know, help our fourth year seniors on, on the rotation. Excellent. So, uh, Liz and Luke, let me ask you as the moderators, and maybe we'll start with you, Liz. I mean, what were your expectations going into this session? Uh, the session is, you know, mentoring new grads. So what did you think was going to be the, the hot topic? I will be very honest. I, I didn't think anybody was going to come. Like, I was completely <laughs> blown away by the amount of people that came and the participation and the lively discussion. So I think I was really quite worried that it, it, it's not viewed as an important enough topic or a topic that the audience would be willing to discuss. And I also really wasn't sure who would be there. Like, would it be new grads? You know, would it be people who have been doing mentoring? You know, and the fact that we ended up having a combination of both to me was just absolutely the best of both worlds. And I would just love to see that get bigger and bigger every year. So I have to say my expectations were a little bit low and I was just really blown away. Cool. And how about yourself, Luke? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, Liz and I met before the table topic just to kind of compare notes. And we really wanted to ask the audience what they wanted to get out of the session to really guide and, you know, give some direction and some structure to the session. So I think that helped a little bit by trying to figure out what people wanted, but there was so much diversity in the room between yourself, who is a a practice owner of large practices, and then the single practitioner that we have on the panel with us. So tons of diversity. There was lots of ages and just people that were willing to share ideas. And that really made the difference from the onset is trying to figure out what people wanted. Um, But I'm like Liz, we just really didn't know what to expect, but it ended up being a, a rather healthy conversation about lots of different things regarding new graduates. Yeah. Caitlin, what was your sense going in as a participant? What do you think was going to happen? Well, I actually attended because I was moderating the table topic afterwards and I was nervous. And so I wanted to attend another one to sort of see how it was being run. In Maine, I don't get as many students through my practice as others do um, just because we're pretty out there as far as location, always uh, happy to have them, but I don't have as many opportunities to mentor. But I, again, with Liz, like I was blown away by the attendance, how eager people were to participate. And I was able to take such valuable information from that table topic to use it in the table topic that I moderated thereafter that were the challenges of the young years and really to connect the youngest practitioners to the oldest and really try and bridge the gap. So it was a pretty awesome experience. Cool. So what were the biggest areas of discussion? I know, uh, as I said, it was a very engaged audience, but what do you think were the one or two main areas of concern? Well, maybe we'll start with you, Luke, on that. I think one of the, the biggest things that we started with was what, what do new, new graduates need in the first six months, um, whether it be an intern or an associate position, or even a resident, is what does that new graduate need in the first six months to kind of set them up for success? And I think the things that really surfaced for me was communication, definitely was a big thing, communicating needs of both the practitioner or the associate and the new graduate. I think other things that kind of surfaced in addition to communication was um, how to add value to the practice and how to add value to that new graduate. So those are the couple of things that surfaced right away from the first six months. And then from there, it kind of led into 
um, other things like how do you give evaluations and what does that need to look like and how do you introduce uh, you know new graduates to to practitioners? So I think there was a lot of topics that were kind of floating around, but to me that first six six to nine months really struck a chord with me on things that new graduates need, and then how do we work them into our practice at the same time? Mm-hmm. I got that too, and, I, and one of the things there was one uh, audience member I don't know where he was. I think he was talking somewhere in Southern California, Arizona, somewhere in the Southwest, and just talking about really setting up expectations at the very beginning and having a very structured first few months. And I thought this this gentleman really uh, gave some great insight. Liz, I'll have to ask you, just because you were in practice for a while before going back to academia and, and, and your role with young vets there, when you reflect back on what you wanted then, and then what you see students need now. Is, is there a big difference? You know, I think there is always a big difference because I think it's so individual what everybody needs. So I did really, really well in the practice that I joined with the mentor, but it's a program that not everybody thrives in. And so I think one of the things that's so important is to remember how individual people are. And we did talk about that a little bit, how you really do have to be able to communicate to the individual. The thing that I got out of it more than anything was how important structure is. And and like you just said, setting expectations. But I do think there needs to be flexibility in terms of not always expecting every peg to go in every hole. And I think that part of being a good mentor is learning how to communicate with different people in order to help them succeed the best. It doesn't have to be sink or swim. And so I do think it's very different for every person. And I've seen that sending vet students into internships. You know, it'll be the exact same internship, a very structured program, and some will love it and some will hate it, you know, and it's just how it affects them personally. I have a question for the three of you in terms of, well, I guess we can look at it from both ends. How does a practice identify that this new graduate would be a good fit for them? And then I guess the next question we can answer afterwards is how does a grad know that this practice is right for them? So maybe we'll start with you, Caitlin, in terms of how does the practice know this person is right for them? With both table topics kind of bringing it together, I think it's important for the student to know what they want and what they need ahead of time. So I knew that I was not interested in doing a lot of reproductive work. So I didn't go looking for a practice that that was a high percentage of what they did. We also discussed in this topic, you know, mentorship can be a really scary word to a lot of practitioners. It sounds like a lot of work. Um, And as Liz just said, every student, every person is different in how they like to receive feedback, what sort of mentorship that they need. I know for me personally, I was very different than other people. So having some sense of this is where I feel like I excel, this is what I need help with. And if a student has some idea of what that looks like, then they can find out from these practices that they are visiting, what does mentorship look like to those practices? How are they currently structuring their programs to provide it? And it may not be a good fit for them. I was a person that I really thrived getting out there and getting my hands dirty. And I was not going to work well for a practice that I was under direct close supervision for eight to nine months before getting the opportunity to try things out on my own. 
So for me, I was able to recognize that ahead of time prior to applying. But for those students that, I mean, I'm just trying to think when you're starting a new job and it's, there's, it's that unknown area in terms of how do you know what you, you know, what is the better mentor for you? I mean, any, any guidance or anything came up out of these sessions, Caitlin, that would help somebody? I'm just thinking of a fourth year student listening to this now or a third year thinking I'm going to be applying for internships, you know, in this coming year. You know, how do they discern what's that right fit for them? That's a good question. I think one thing to go and do is ask some of your really close professors, some of your best professors that you thought were great teachers. I think when you have a mentor, you also need to find somebody that in the core of who they are is a great teacher. And teachers don't stop once you graduate vet school. So people that you're seeing in your internships, these practitioners, they need to have the soul of a teacher, even while out in the field and practicing. I think that's important. Um, If someone's not interested in teaching you, then it's probably not a good place for you to be. Other than that, I think I'd have to ponder on that one just a little bit more. And and Luke, I mean, you're running the internship program. I mean, what kind of insights would you have on this? Because I'm just, I'm looking for both sides. Either A, that practitioner who has had students or new grads and it hasn't worked out, what are some of the things they can reflect upon? And then for that student who's trying to discern what's the right fit for them, what kind of insight can you give on that? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And it's it's one that it's still uh, very fresh in me because I've been out of school 12 years, but I remember when I visited the practice that I eventually did an internship at, it was the practice culture that really fit for me. It was the number of doctors that were there. It was the level of mentorship that they were willing to offer. So I think you really have to to go visit places and see, am I wanting to work at a, a 40 doctor practice or a 10 doctor practice or a two doctor practice? And, and really, you really don't know what you want until you've experienced all of it. And then something will surface, something that fits really well. And it almost feels like home away from home. And so it, it takes traveling, it takes uh, seeing some different things. And, and then from the other side of it, you know, from a person looking to hire someone, it, it's getting in the truck or going to have dinner or just learning more about that person to see, does this person really fit our team? It's not always trying to find the person that's exactly like you, or maybe you're, maybe you're looking for someone that's the opposite of you, but how does the person fit into the team and how, how is that person going to represent your team in front of clients? So I think you, you have to have a, almost, I call it a daytime marriage. You know, you, you mm-hmm. may, you may have a family at home or you may have a spouse or a partner at home, but you, you got to fit. It goes back to what Liz was saying. You, you got to fit in the right size. And you'll know very quickly when it fits and when it doesn't fit. So that, that's my word of encouragement from both sides of it is getting that experience of traveling and seeing and doing will really help you figure out what is comfortable and what feels like home. Yeah. And I would say on, on, on both sides, because as you were talking, I was thinking of, of a situation where I had asked a colleague, this goes back years, that, you know, hey, we're looking for a vet. And this person came up and said, oh, this is a person who's just finishing an internship. Uh, This person will be outstanding. One of my favorite interns of all time. You are going to love her. And she came in, you know, within 10 minutes of having a conversation, I was like, boy, this this is not going to work at all. (laughs) And not a reflection on her. It's just two different personality types. And the word that's going around right now is culture. 
And I'm like, there's no way she's going to fit in our culture and we're probably not the right culture for her. And so I really think it highlights what all of you are saying is spending time with the practice on both sides to evaluate each other to see if you're the right fit for each other. And and just reflecting, you know, just asking a, a, a colleague, hey, is this a person good? And, and this, I'm sure this woman was an exceptional diagnostician, but would really struggle in our culture. So that, those are good, some wise words. Can I speak to this one as well? Please. Yeah. Listen, Liz, and then we'll go to Caitlin. Just because I just find this so fascinating and I drive around with third and fourth year students every day. And I mean, I, I don't know about you guys, but I have made some very bad hiring decisions. And, you know, I think that it's really hard when you spend a day or two with somebody to actually know if they're going to fit in with your culture. And sometimes you do get that gut feeling, Mike, like you just said, and you're like, no, this isn't going to work. But sometimes it's not that obvious, especially if they come with glowing recommendations, you know, you're kind of like, well, gosh, you know, it can be a little hard. And so what I really firmly believe, and I tell the students a lot is if it's a good, a decent practice, you're going to learn what you need to learn for the period of time you're there. Like not everybody goes to their first job and stays for 12 years like I did. You know, if you're there for two or three years and you get out of it what you want, then that's great. But it all boils down to personality fit. And so I have had some really great veterinarians go to really great practices and had it be catastrophic, like so catastrophic that a new grad almost left the career because it was such a bad personality fit. And they were both terrific humans, but they just didn't work well together. And so, you know, she had a certain idea of a certain kind of practice she wanted in mind. And she chose the practice type over the personality types. And it, it just, it killed her. Like it, it, it absolutely did not work. And so I tell people it, the most important thing is personality fit because you're going to learn the skills you need to learn. And if you don't learn them there, you'll learn them somewhere else. But your first few years, you're so fragile. And if bad things happen, you know, it really can be catastrophic for your career. So I think that personality fit, when I'm talking to students, I, I really emphasize that because it's as important to your success as anything else. Absolutely. That's great. Caitlin. Kind of tagging on to what Luke said about, you know, a lot of times you don't really get a grasp of the practice until you're there. Um, I know when I was a student that, you know, there are a lot of people going to some pretty big name practices. I think it can be very intimidating to A, not go and to even try and visit one. And so I went to some bigger practices that were in an area I thought I wanted to be in. And then when I got there, the culture did not align with my own personal culture. And then I was able to, I literally went through the entire list of AAP avenues. I had a list of things that I wanted and what I didn't want. And I found some that went with that. And then I asked the mentors of mine, I was like, what do you think about these practices? And I encourage people to look at practices that they may not have typically looked at. And where I did my internship um, out in Kansas City was great. And it was not a practice that anyone in my school had heard about. Now, if you go to Kansas State or Missouri, they know about it, but not in Ohio. And so I really felt like I found a needle in the haystack. It worked well for um, what I needed as far as my mentorship, but I would have never have found that if I didn't look beyond, I think, what was considered normal. And then also from 
just students visiting externships, again, like if we just focused every externship on somewhere where we intended to do an internship, I think that you could also miss out because not every externship is created equal. You don't get hands-on experience at every single one. So I think I would encourage students in that situation to look at sometimes the smaller practices such as mine or other solo practitioners. I think you're going to get a lot more hands-on experience than you might get at a larger practice. And you'll just see a different way of doing things that you can put in your back pocket that you might need seven years down the line. That's really a good insight. You ask students and there's always the big names that they go to. And it just seems like, you know, trying to go to an Ivy League university, but Boy, exactly. You get an exceptional education by not going there because you get, mm-hmm. I think, what, you're, you're, what you said of that personal attention may be lacking in some of these bigger name practices. So, uh, another question, and I think, you know, we got a good mix here. I'm really curious about that. So, what can vet schools do to help grads prepare better for the realities of practice? And I guess the real question is can they prepare them? But, you know, you know what, what do you guys recommend? I'll start with you, Luke, on that. How, how long do you have? I think getting getting some experience in the first year, second year, third year on some good, strong, basic skills, uh, talking to clients, floating teeth, um, castrating horses, giving IV injections, but starting early and, and hitting it very frequent really helps. I've seen the confidence of fourth-year students when they get on these senior rotations. That's not the first time they've ever put a dental speculum in a horse's mouth. It's not the first time they've ever scrubbed a joint. So getting some experience, the vet school is making it mandatory to have have a, a day, two days a semester that you shadow a veterinarian in a different area, I think makes a huge difference. And then having senior rotations to where they're doing a lot of, of basic things and taking it to, to the next level. Standing in surgery is great from experience standpoint, but getting to place one suture per day is really not the best use of our students' time. So developing, you know, labs using models, teaching horses with imaging, and there's tons of opportunities for vet students to get experience on things they're going to do every single day. And so I think that that would be a good start. And that's something that that I know Liz and myself and other people who do field service try to do this every single day is getting them to make decisions, getting them comfortable making decisions is a great place to start. Yeah, and I think the uh, the decision making and the responsibility for the decision making, boy, that takes a long time for anybody to develop. So the sooner they can start that, the better. What about yourself, Liz? In terms of your position, what do you think the uh, universities can do to, to help these students prepare? I think Luke covered kind of like basic skills really nicely, but I would also say that the universities have to have have to give the students access to people with a really wide variety of backgrounds, right? Because it is just most of the people in vet school are probably not going to go ahead and do and specialize and do residencies. And like Penn has a pretty high rate of that, but there are still so many students coming through who are going to go into general practice and things like that. And I think that, I think they need to have people to talk to at the university with varied backgrounds. And I know that's one thing that New Bolton likes 
keeping me around for <laughs> because I have a weird background. Like there's no one else here that has my kind of background. And, you know, the students, I sometimes don't have enough time to answer all of their questions. I, and I have to tell them to email me, you know, because they want to know what the real world is like. And so I think that being able to offer that, like just not every student is going to leave and specialize and then work in a hospital. You know, I think that we really have to be able to advise students for every path that they might take. And how about you, Caitlin? What do you think? I could not agree with Liz more. I think after my table topic, that is something I am so passionate about is that we've got students that are scared to even go into equine practice before they've even put their foot in the door. And I think the generation coming out now, part my generation, has a pretty good idea of what they want out of their personal life and their goals for how they envision their life to look like. And there was one woman in our talk that said she has two horses and she loves her horses and she loves her horses more than she loves practicing equine medicine. And I think that's a really important thing to know ahead of time. And what I think is a huge issue is that students are not getting a good representation of what is out there, who's out there and who's practicing. Um, we get great exposure to these very big practices, um, to some of the five, seven doctor practices that run a lot of externs through them, have their internship programs, but you're not seeing the solo practitioners. The p- women that want to be mothers are not seeing the women that are out there practicing and are dropping their kids off at daycare and are picking them up and are doing it and doing it successfully. And so if they don't know that that exists, they have a fear that if they want kids, they're not going to be able to make it work. And that's not true. Like I have a lot of friends that that is not true for. So um, how we do that, I don't know yet. Uh, But I do think we need to increase exposure to students exposure to um, other options, other practice models outside of large group practices. Another thing that I think we could do better on is talking about money. And having students be very aware of the cost of services that they're providing, both the client's cost and our cost as doctors, and starting to get an understanding about that, starting to uh, know how to calculate bills, how to tell the client how much it is, uh, because it's awkward at first. And the more you do it, the better you get at it. And if we can start being comfortable talking about money and understanding it, we'll do a much better job in the future when they're actually out in practice. Yeah, no, I, I think that's great. I just made a note there. And I think that's something that, you know, there are some exceptional practices that are very, they're very friendly for young people that maybe want to have families or work part time. And they're just, you know, I think you're, you're so spot on that we need to start highlighting some of these other practice types. And, and I think that's a good segue because the, the, the next question I want to get into and just discuss is, you know, when we look at the practitioner's point of view, and in terms of as a practitioner, you're used to one way of doing things, and maybe you've never had an associate or new grad come join you, and or you did in the past, and it didn't work out well. Any suggestions for practitioners on, on terms of how they can, you know, be more welcoming, receptive to a new grad that most likely has a different outlook or different expectation. I'll, I'll start with you, Luke, to see if you have any thoughts on that. 
Well, I see this a lot with new graduates here. Um, some don't want to do strict equine internships. They want to go into a mixed or large animal job. And so they may be interviewing with for someone who's been out of school 30 or 40 years uh, and may have an associate maybe halfway in the middle or maybe doesn't. And so I think I think it's really nice to, as a person wanting to hire someone, to sit down and figure out what you're looking for first, and then what are some things that you want in that person? Is it working 14 hours a day? Is it working three days a week? What are you looking for? What areas could they bring to your practice? And then trying to go from, from that point, but just interviewing people to interview people, I think is, is kind of hard. So it's really just trying to figure out what am I looking for? But I think at this point, there's so many new graduates and students and even people that have been out three or four years that are just looking for mentorship and looking for a daytime partner and just looking for someone to share cases with. And they want validation. Mm -hmm. New graduates are looking for validation to say, I, this is, these are my thoughts about this case. I just want to make sure I'm doing the right thing. And I get these calls probably weekly from new graduates who are just wanting to make sure they're not screwing things up. And so I think a, a practitioner has to be willing to, to offer that. They have to be willing to be available no matter what. Just like we know our clients want us to be available 24-7, I think older, more seasoned practitioners have to be willing to give the same thing. So I think it, it, it works really well when, when you have identified what you're looking for, but then you really identify what, what you can provide to that new graduate. Well, that's that's interesting. I never thought of it that way, uh, in terms of you know the relationship, uh, very similar to what our clients expect of us. Liz, any thoughts on that from yourself in terms of you know any suggestions that you would give to any practitioners who are starting to want to bring on a new grad in terms of how they can adjust to it? Yeah, you know, I think I think there's definitely a little bit of a balancing line, right? Because if you are successful in practice, your clients are probably used to seeing things look a certain way. And if someone comes in and starts doing things completely differently, your clients are not going to be very comfortable with that. And I think you have to you have to walk a line where you respect your clients and you want to keep them happy and you also want to utilize the the skills and the strengths of your new grad. So I think that it's really good. And one thing I really enjoyed doing in practice was kind of going over, this is what our clients are used to seeing. You know, when we go to work up a colic, this is how it looks. Um, or when we go to treat for anaplasma, this is how it looks. And, and then so that they know what our clients are expecting and then kind of go over, listen, if you do something different, let me know what that is. And we can start introducing that to the clients. But I do think there's a level of client comfort that you have to be cognizant of. Um, otherwise, they're not going to want to use that practitioner. Mm -hmm. And you don't want someone to get off on the wrong foot like that. I think you need to be very open to incorporating new ideas. And I love, like, I love hearing from new grads kind of their new ideas and things like that. But I do also think that from a business standpoint, you have to be cognizant about what your clients are going to be comfortable with. So I think there's just a, a line that's easy to walk if you're aware of it. And what about yourself, Caitlin? What are your thoughts on this? I really liked what Luke had to say about um, having just sort of that fallback in practice. I went out on my own a year and nine months into practice, um, much earlier than I would have anticipated. It was not a mistake. However, my learning curve compared to my friends was a lot slower because I didn't have somebody on the other end of the phone, or I actually had to rely on my friends. But I 
did not test the boundaries as frequently as I could have if I knew I had the support of somebody else. So growth happens at the edge of the boundary where it's uncomfortable. Well, when you're by yourself, you're less likely to get uncomfortable yeah. often. Um, so going back to defining, you know, what does mentorship look like? If you need somebody just to bounce ideas off of, I'm here. I think, again, that first year to four, especially as uh, young veterinarians go through the horrible phase of imposter syndrome, it's a hard time where you do need a lot of reassurance. And then they bounce back and then they're on fire and they've got all these great ideas and having a business owner open to new ideas. And even though it may be strange or different, it's likely going to really help grow the business. Yeah, and I know we talked about during the table topic about, you know, letting young vets make mistakes. And I, I know I've seen yeah. many practice owners and they maybe have been by themselves or there's another associate's been with them a long time. And, you know, there's a lot of confidence in their clients with the vet. And if the vet happens to make a mistake, well, as I said, there's a history built up and everything is okay. But I have seen some of these practitioners be very intolerant when, you know, a young vet screws up and we're all going to screw up. That's how we learn. And I think, you know, we're just talking about where we learn is where it's uncomfortable. And I think it's the same thing for the practice owners is it has to be a certain level of letting go and, you know, letting the the, this new vet take these few unsteady steps and, and maybe they're going to fall down and you've got to help them get back up again. And I think the more confidence we can give them, the better. That's kind of, And I know you talk a lot of older vets that are like, well, that's not the way it was when I started, but you know, a lot of things aren't the same way as it was back then. So I, I think it's, you know, it's a, it's a different group right now. So we've got to adjust ourselves to that. Oh, just to add on to that, someone that's, very intolerant to mistakes, perhaps isn't having enough self-reflection to realize or to think about the ones that they themselves are making. We all make them. I made one last week. Mm-hmm. didn't beat myself up about it, decided what what happens, and I will not do that again, but I made one, and um, it's okay. Yeah. so if if we can acknowledge the mistakes that we made, someone's going to be much more comfortable and free to make mistakes but they're going to make the right kind of mistakes. They're going to make the mistakes that result in growth. We don't want people so afraid of making mistakes that they make stupid mistakes. I remember every time I've been with a young uh, associate, a new vet for us, and they have screwed up. I just think when I did my internship and, you know, the whole thing, nut to nut, well, I, in my frenzy to do a good job, (laughs) I did not. And it was a standing castration. And I remember the veterinarian was so calm, cool, collected. It said, well, we got to try a different approach now. And there wasn't any hysteria or anger. It was just a learning opportunity. And I was just so lucky that I had that because, boy, he could have been pretty annoyed. So I think we all appreciated that. Last question, and and Luke, you made some really good notes of the session. And the one thing I just had to ask three of you about is talking about a vision plan and just sort of having that plan for that new grad that's joining a practice. Can you, you flesh out that concept? So one document I found that I think is incredibly valuable, and I'm now handing it out to anybody who will stand still long enough, is the American Animal Hospital Association Mentoring Guidelines, because it is like a 12 
action steps they give you for developing a, a good mentoring relationship that works both for the mentee and the mentor. And it's very, very structured, which I think is the number one most important thing in being a successful mentor. You, you have to have structure and you have to set expectations. So this document actually gives you 12 very concrete steps to fulfill from the very beginning for initiating the mentoring relationship to celebrating the end of the mentoring relationship. So I would strongly encourage everybody to print out this document. I think it's just terrific. So the vision plan is step five of the, of the action steps. Um, and it's where you kind of come up with your overall purpose and long-term goals of the mentoring relationship. So you're really setting up expectations at day one then. Yeah, that is just really important. And the ex- and that can change, you know, like you bring your vision plan to every meeting, whether you're meeting at first monthly or quarterly or however many times. I, I thought that was very interesting discussion at the roundtable, how often everybody meets. And that might need to depend a little bit on the mentee, but structure and setting expectations are very, very important for both people. Excellent. This has been a a fantastic discussion. I'm I'm sure we could probably talk all evening about it. I just didn't know if anybody had any last words or anything that we should have covered that we didn't. Please chime in now. Well, I guess I have to say that thank you for this podcast and this table topic. And the one that was after this um, about the challenges with young grads. It's not everyone, but change is happening in this profession. And it's going to happen whether or not people choose to participate in it. And those that are spearing the change, it's just really inspiring. And it's getting people excited and it's getting students excited and starting to see a renewal of their faith that they can be successful in equine practice. And I think that this particular discussion that we had is a huge part of that. Well, you know what I would love? I, you know, I just I had a recent podcast with Dr. Amy Grice talking about the AVMA AEP uh, economic survey. And when she talked that 1.1% of new grads want to go into equine practice, and I'm like, I, I guess mm-hmm. what we want is let's get that to 2%, 3%. Let's, let's get that up. And I think, as you were saying, Caitlin, I think there are some exciting practices that are challenging the status quo. And I think that's where our profession is going to go. And I I have a lot of optimism of where this profession can go. There are so many that we don't even know are out there that are doing it. They're on Facebook for sure, but they're out there. I think the last thing to mention is the AAP is really investing quite a bit of resources in the mentoring idea. And they've they've come up with a, a new mentoring program called the Outrider Mentoring Program that both mentors and mentees can sign up for and really share ideas back and forth and, and really provide that source that, that some people are looking for. So I would encourage anyone who's interested to visit the AEP website, um, Google the Outrider Mentoring Program and sign up because I think it can really provide lots of good back and forth conversation and development of both a seasoned practitioner and a new grad. So I would encourage anyone was interested to check that out. Great tip. Thank you. Thank you all very much. This was an exceptional discussion and I'm hoping the AAP members get a lot of value out of this. Thank you so much. For more resources to help you in daily practice, please visit the AAP's website at aaep.org.